Hello and welcome to the Stinging Fly podcast. I'm Sally Rooney, the editor of the Stinging Fly, and I'm here today with Colm Keegan. Colm Keegan is a writer and poet from Dublin, Ireland. Since 2005, he has been shortlisted four times for the Hennessy New Irish Writing Award for both poetry and fiction and won the All-Ireland Poetry Slam in 2010. His first book, Don't Go There, was released to critical acclaim in 2012 and his new book, Randomer, um, has just recently been published and is in shops now. Thank you for joining us today, Colm. No problem. How's it going, Sally? (laughs) Very well, thank you. How are you? Good. Uh, so you're reading, today you're reading a short story called The Cavalcade by Sean yeah. O'Reilly, which initially appeared in The Stinging Fly in winter 2013. Yeah, and it's a slightly abridged, uh, hopefully Sean will forgive me when he realises what isn't in there. Um, the Cavalcade by Sean O'Reilly. Tuesday afternoons was his slot on Blessing and Row, number 16 with the three seashell window boxes of Heather. He liked us to be waiting in silence for his big arrival. He had to teach us how to wait, so he taught. The right positions around the house, posture, costumes, all that. Caitlin already knew more about waiting than was good for her. My body isn't way too much of a hurry, she said when I found her pills in the cutlery drawer. Ever feel you have a totally different sense of time than all the other fucked up losers? The colours of inside a tree trunk, those fresh yellows and ambers and the winding darker strands. Her hair was always long enough to cover her little hypersensitive breasts. She generally wore only a bikini top and bandages on her hands when the eczema was bad. Alexander was the handle he gave us to use for him if we ever got the chance of a word in. Before I had proof on that altar and Chapel Lizard that he was officially a Bernard, we had also known him as Tully, Lavery and Martin 100. Parked outside the house in his grey two-year-old Yaris, elbow out the window. He would suck his way down a frugal spliff, a man in two minds about coming in, a man stealing himself, examining his tongue in the mirror. But it was the car doors we listened for, first the drivers, then the back passenger door after he stowed the taxi sign, and some afternoons the boot lid, hollow as the judge's gavel. Bernard didn't like to knock, so one of my jobs was door opener. Caitlin in position at the bottom of the stairs in some scrap of a costume, a man's denim short, a pink sari, a polka dot bikini, her beautiful hair up or down or sometimes still wet from her butt. As soon as he was over the threshold, she would take his shoes and socks off and hand them to me. Then it was time to follow him into the living room where he might warm the weird bulging red balls of his feet over the flames in our small grate for a minute or a lot longer before the recap began. Where we were at, what had happened the previous week, who was being good and who was slacking. Some days he had notes with him and strips of paper from the car's receipt machine. Caitlin used to keep them to stick in her book. This kind of thing. It occurred to me during the week, kiddywinks, and I made a note over here that this is a snakes and ladders sort of landscape we are ushering through. We push and push, individually and collectively. We keep rolling the dice and maybe if we're lucky, something gives and we surge forward and we're skipping along across the squares and the walls are coming down, but then, checking his notes. Bollocks. I can't find it. Bollocks, Phil. I wrote the fucker down. And what the fuck do I mean by a glass catapult? Underlined and everything. Look, glass catapult. Bollocks. Anyway, it's not about ladders, it's about the dice. The bones, not just the muscles, the bones. So today, and I've put some thought into this, here's what we're going to do. That was the kind of thing. He could be very serious about it all. He got better, in my opinion, more instinctual. One Tuesday, 
She was sucking him off and he switched to me suddenly. Let me have a go with my mouth for the first time and made a competition out of it. Who's the best? Who will Mr. Alexander give a treat to? Like somebody had told him it was the easiest way to get under Caitlin's skin. She pushed me out of the way, left a scratch across my face when I stuck my head in again. For a boss, he was overcritical of himself and hard to follow, but as Caitlin put it, that didn't make him hard to fathom. She's a smart one, with her very own brand of the stuff, and she was probably bored with me a lot of the time, running rings around me, exasperated by that blush on my face of excitement and pride in how much I thought I was changing. Did you learn absolutely nothing in prison? No wonder they threw you out early, she said to me once, after we'd been to see our father, and walked off. It was her who clocked Bernard wasn't too fond of the stairs. Why, you ask? He's a bungalow man, are you blind? He's stuck on the floor with his rumpled skills porn, and we're stuck here with him until he finds a way to get us up there in the right order. Who goes first? You, me, him. Who goes second round the bend in the stair? He hasn't figured it out yet. He's more of a novice than you, my tattooed tower block saint. She was mad to know the story behind every tat. I'd be telling her about the trip into town with the money in my pocket who was on the gun, how many sessions, the kind of stuff I remember. And her frustration would be rising like I was wandering off the subject. No, go back, when you had the idea, why was it a flying fish, was it a dream? Or the thorns round your ankles, why? What gave you the idea? Why can't you speak the truth? Or if I was telling her about being inside, or later on trying to make her see all we could do together in London. To keep the peace one day, I had to take her to see where I hit my teens full throttle in inchy car. I pointed across the street at the plain five-up block I had told her a lot about. She has a face that looks a bit cross most of the time. It's her eyebrows, I think, short and sharp-tipped and very pale, and then her small, dark eyes sheltering under a deep brow. But at that moment, she was scowling at the flats, like I had got the wrong address, that it couldn't possibly be the place I had described to her, where I had loved and lost and gone down to hell. Why was I such a scumbag lawyer? Was it just stupid or was it trying to fuck her ahead? This only came out hours and points and many long silences later in town. I thought it was because the old flats were boarded up now. But the truth was this. I had shamelessly and benevolently failed to mention the blind obvious, a high priority fundamental detail, which was that the block didn't have verandas. The truth is a donkey toward in the moon, Bernard was one for saying and the truth we had stepped in and were spreading across the pub carpet on our many trips to the taps was that Caitlin had done some imagining of me back then in the flats. She had written about it in her book, killing the hours at a long, crumbling balcony wall, night after night, dreaming of escape from the violence and poverty, and all the lights of the city suddenly joining up to make a kind of pattern I knew I had to draw on my skin to wrap myself in. She had written a whole chapter about it in her book, and now the details were wrong. There had never been a balcony. And now she would have to score it out. And it was the same with the sex we had together. There was the way I kissed her and touched her and the way I crossed into her and what I said, all the obvious stuff. But the truth was more about what I didn't dare do and didn't say. I had to be more honest than I knew how to be. The more you wound up to, the better. The worse she got. Caitlin was a thin-skinned, overheating lie detector. And if I told the truth... I was free. So we went with her to meet her father the first time, taking another day off. She pushed him against the wall halfway through a public tour of doll, furious as a fairy tale princess in her efficient blue carpets and flew out the window, 
and I'm nearly sure that Bernard was behind the wheel of the taxi we got into later, although we had a beard then. He was more interested in Caitlin than me then too. It was me who sat on the stairs in the early days, as part of the initial deal struck between the three of us. I was denied the right to ask questions. You go through this on your lonesome bum fluff, Bernard said. So we went through it. The one time I put my ear to the door, they were talking, out in the kitchen, their voices low, chairs creaking in the long pauses, a slow spoon stroking a cup. It's just like an interview, she told me, but he thinks he has come with these trick questions to catch it out, and he's so proud of them, I can't bear to disappoint him. But do you know he has his own meanings for some words? He thinks poignant is something seedy and illegal. Caitlin had more experience than me, a lot more. It was an easy one to win. She led into her life by reading from her book, her novel about the girl in the private mental hospital, and her memories of being dragged around the country by her parents, the furniture wrapped in blankets, the new uniforms, the beds, and the search for more and more sex. Removal men, teachers, neighbours, lots of doctors, strangers, underage boys and two old poets at a wake, but never any mention of what you would call a boyfriend. That's where I came in, I suppose. A boyfriend experiment. One pair of hands with pictures on the back. One curving cock. She's a posh, poignant bitch, this one, Bernard said the first Tuesday afternoon I was invited into the liver room. Caitlin over his knee. He was spanking her, making her confess what a spoiled slut she was, and Caitlin played along. She had Bernard and me hanging on her every word. I was made to stand by the window to keep an eye on the car because there were a few dodgy wetbacks on the street. Before that month was out, October, I had permission to watch her sucking him off or whatever was on the menu. So we went through that too. The new feelings you get. The suffocation. The smallest and the huge unbelievable surges. I produce a lot of unnecessary skin, Caitlin said about her eczema. It's all in your head, Bernard said. Yes, Mr. Morris Lavery. Keep guessing. Have you always had it? Not consistently. You get time off. Sometimes it goes away completely, but not consistently. So far, never, Mr. Vladimir Lavery. Never. Exactly. Idealism, the destroyer of youth. There's no such thing, so don't waste your time. It's all in your pineapple. By the time he bought Caitlin a wet-look gold bikini and a coral neckline, Bernard was turning his attention to me more. His ideas were changing. Finally, Caitlin said, and it was her turn to watch me now giggle, sneer, egg him on, the foul-mouthed lazy beach girl on the sofa smeared with hydrocortisone, masturbating, her eyes sinking deeper under a frown. Me and my hands and knees over a dog bowl of tap water. A punter left it in the taxi, he claimed. A sign, he said. Never ignore the ordinary. Then me spreading my own asshole for them while they discussed which dildo to use. I began to like her bandages scratching the skin off my back in the morning, or pressing down on my chest like two big paws. I was on my last warning at work. Caitlin was licking his balls the first time he found the nerve to go into me. After it, we lit the fire and got stoned together. Another force because Bernard insisted we should be clean for him. Maybe some night will come round and stay over, he said. Well, upstairs, Caitlin laughed. What's the opposite of vertigo? She thought for a moment and said, gravity, fear of gravity. And he shook his head sadly. Vertigo is about the past. You two are too young to even know what the past is yet. Live in the moment for as long as you can. That's my advice, kids. 
Forget about the past. Do you think I should shave my balls? We need to make a sacrifice, Caitlin said. That's how they used to do it back in the misty forests. Suddenly, Bernard's nose burst. He had a nosebleed. Too much of his cheap weed, he said. His nose had a funny tip. Melted, you would think. Melted and pinched into a crooked, witchy point. And he had these crafty eyes like a child with three mothers. At the lunch afterwards in the airport VIP lounge, I was still laughing about it. Probably too much about the jibes and the taunting were more ridiculous than usual between father and daughter. Mr. Andrew Bennett usually hid his swelling body between a lot of loose, dark linen and his eyes behind at least six different pairs of glasses he was continually swapping about or looking for in his pockets. He used to phone Caitlin every evening at 8.30am and a few times she showed up at the front door, he wasn't allowed in. If this daddy wanted to see his daughter, he had to agree to her demands which came to her on the spur of the moment and didn't mean much, like forcing him to meet her at a fetish club near Connolly Station or to have his palm read at the Smithfield Horse Fair. He was telling me he would have been on the Concorde flight which crashed in Paris a few years ago, only he had to come back to Ireland for an emergency. Caitlin went rigid beside me, froze stiff. A family emergency, he added. He crossed himself and said something along the lines of every cloud has a silver lining and Caitlin flew at him across the table, ripping the glasses off his face. Still, she has got our money before we left. We went out that night and right through the next one, blew every red cent of it. One Thursday afternoon, nearly dark, Bernard turned up at the door and blessed in row without any arrangement. There had been bits of snow that day but he was only wearing a t-shirt. He said he had parked the car in the next street and there was something else in it. There was somebody else in it who wanted to meet us. He made it sound like a threat. He was angry. New dice, I was thinking. Then he forgot about it, starting barking orders, eyeballing the walls, stamping on the floor. Before the shoes were off, he had his cock out. He wanted it done in a hurry. No talking, you pair of dossers. Bernard was a big fucker in more ways than one. I was even wondering what he had in the house if he got out of order. Caitlin wasn't phased at all by the aggression. The threat in his eyes didn't worry her. In fact, she gave him more attention than usual. She actually managed to let herself go. It disappointed me to feel the jealousy as bad as ever, seeing her engrossed like that. Sitting astride him on the sofa. Bernard glared over a slim shoulder at me. I waited my turn, impatient for what he would do to me after. Caitlin had always said Bernard would run out of ideas for us one day. She saw through him. I don't remember him asking for what happened that afternoon. It wasn't an instruction. I can see Caitlin cross-legged on the floor and she's rubbing Bernard's lower back. He's lying belly down, his head in my lap. Caitlin and I have been staring at each other for a long time, but it's as if our faces are masks, smooth, expressionist. It seems to be the end of the road. Then I realise Caitlin has a finger or two on his ass. It's always been out of bounds. It didn't even exist. Bernard gasps, gripping my knee. Then Caitlin has switched position. His head is at our chest now and I'm kneeling up behind him, holding his strong, stiff hips, going in carefully, a touch and a touch, more, patient, staggered, fierce. It seemed to take hours. Bernard roared and sobbed. An hour later, he was lying in the same spot, a broken man in a pool of tears. Caitlin and me stayed out away in the kitchen. Something important had happened. It was a first time for me too, but Caitlin played it down so much, I wondered if it had been what she really wanted all along to see me take another man. I had so many questions. 
Did she think Bernard had been secretly after this all along? The boss dragged out of his office and raped? Or was it me, waiting and plotting my revenge on him? Caitlin acted as if she was more interested in whether we were going out later. I went in to talk to Bernard. He wouldn't get up off the floor. He was still crying, choking on his snot. It was getting worse. We didn't go out that night. Caitlin threatened to go by herself, but she stayed upstairs in the end. Bernard grew quieter, but he didn't know where he was or who he might be some of the time. He was scared, cornered. I managed to move him onto the sofa and threw a blanket over him, forced some of Caitlin's sleeping pills into him. Then I went to bed. Caitlin was pretending to be asleep. Her breathing was too shallow and fast. I'm sorry, I said, in case I was supposed to. I had one of my bad dreams. Woke up and on her side of the bed was empty apart from a ribbon of bandage. The window was open as if she'd flown away. On the way down the stairs, and I took my time, one narrow step at a time, some part of me didn't expect to find either of them. They'd be laughing in the back of his taxi somewhere. I would be the loser in a game I never understood. Opening the door, stepping into the square of the living room, what I did find was Caitlin leaning over Bernard with a pair of scissors. Get him out. Get this Windsor out of my house or I won't be responsible for what I do. Then she did this thing with the scissors, cutting around her own outline like she was a picture in a book. By the morning, the situation hadn't changed much. Every light on in the house and the windows bravely holding back the rain. Neither of them was speaking to me. I felt they were waiting on me now to make a decision. Caitlin floated in the bath. Bernard's tongue hung out of his mouth. I could see he was in a bad way, but what was I supposed to do? Drag him out the door by the ankles and leave him out in the street? Or call a doctor? I didn't want to land him in trouble. After everything we had done, him and Caitlin, me and him, him and me, the three of us, I knew nothing about his life outside of our place, other than his taxi driving stories, and he wasn't from Dublin, and his opinions on the merits of Chinese versus Eastern European escorts. Caitlin spent the day on our bed, in our boots and coat, writing in a book and running bats. I rang work and that was it, the heave ho. Then it was dark again. Rain came down the chimney. The main thought was I would have to stay awake all night to keep them apart. The other thoughts were about what they wanted me to do. They were waiting on me, expecting me to come up with something big and they would obey. It was my turn to roll the dice. Caitlin was disgusted by the delay. She said, it's always fear with you, isn't it? You can't tell the difference between fear and desire like every other excuse for a man. I went through it, kept a watch on them, on me, on the house. So it hit me as being completely impossible when I went up to the bedroom to tell her Bernard was a bit better and saw she was gone. She couldn't have got out of the house without me hearing her. I would have known if I'd been asleep, wouldn't I? The girl is hiding. I twigged next and started to search the house. Under the beds, even opening drawers and cupboards, the backyard. After that, I rang a phone in every room like I would catch her. Maybe because there was someone in the house behaving crazier than he was now. Bernard somehow managed to pull himself together again, made us a pot of tea and sat me down. The man talked and talked for the rest of the day. I got his full story. He steered away from what happened in the front room and instead the big issue was his fiancée. Yes, Bernard was meant to be getting married. Only for the past few months. Apart from what he was doing in Blessing Row with us, he was paying for sex with three or four women a day. He couldn't stop. The man had spent the fortune, run up some major debt. He was sinking and kept on shagging, 
Eight women in one day, he claimed. 800 euro, including petrol. And when the bills went unpaid and the fiancé finally confronted him, he let her have it. The truth. And that brought him to our door the day before. And his wife-to-be had a couple of brothers who were not amused. At least now it's out in the open, he said, waiting for me to agree. I had to find Caitlin. She would give herself away to anybody the first chance she got. I saw her flushed, frowning face under a pile of men's bodies. The jealousy was worse than ever. Bernard wanted to lend a hand, but I was glad to be rid of him when the taxi arrived to pick him up. Don't be too hard on her, he said. Look how much that girl has done for you. She's a sweetheart. I hit the streets, the city centre. When you were searching for somebody in the crowds or running in our places, appearing in all of that CCTV footage, you realise everybody you see is hiding, disguised, timid. They look as you as if it's them you're after. For a split second it's written on their faces. Me? Oh no, it's not me I want. Are you the one I dread? And what they read in your face that they are not the one. Not today anyway. The relief melts into a sneer and you become one of the lunatics they laugh at and ignore. Thank you very much, Colm. So the first question is always the same. Why is this the story that you chose? Uh, well, I was just thinking of all the different things I've read in this thing in Floyd. Um, and I was thinking like of the intimacy of how people listen to stuff on podcasts, you know. Uh, and I was thinking of how hard it is to read certain things out and how easy it is to read certain things. And like, I talk all the time in schools about um, we read to find our secret selves. So sometimes you read things you can't even say to yourself um, or that never gets discussed by anybody. Mm. And it's in, it's on, but it's, it's safe on the page. Like it's like an internal hand grenade. It just goes off inside. It doesn't, and you just close it. Like I think, think of like, I could never finish a Carver story and go on to the next one. I'd always have to stop because I'd be like slayed, you know. Sure. Um, and Sean, I think, is really provocative as a writer. Um, and I just, I love, it's a very confusing time now in terms of like what can be said, mm-hmm. right? Especially in fiction. Sure. So I think that's why I chose it. Um, and also because uh, I just really liked the protagonist, you know, the main character. Um and there's, I didn't know he was a he for a long time in the story. And that was cool. I have know? a question about that actually coming up. But just to go back to what you were saying yeah. um, before that, there's a there's a line in the story um, where the narrator is describing his sexual relationship with Caitlin. And he says, I had to be more honest than I knew how to be, which almost seems to describe the job of a writer in a way. Yeah. Um, forcing themselves to confront things that aren't actually in your vocabulary. Um, and of course, Caitlin in the story is also a writer. She seems to be writing a book, maybe a memoir. Mm. Um, and then Bernard kind of fucks around with writing as well. He's like <laughs> making a mess of yes, creating some analogy. That's right. He's making notes. So do you think this story has a particular appeal for writers or something to say about the act of writing, the process of writing? Um. I remember I did a workshop years ago with Sean O'Reilly and I couldn't believe the cheek of him to turn around <laughs> and say that everybody in his book were, everybody was real, like in love and sleep. Um, and I was like, what? You actually 
how'd you get it? Like, how, I was shocked. It was like, this was like 2007 or something. I was like, how do you get away with that? You know, are you still, are you still talking to you? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And uh, um, just the distortion, like what is actually true and what's fiction, mm. you know, when you get down to it. Um, so, and that's all over this story. So I'm really intrigued by that as a writer, especially a writer of poetry, which comes with these sometimes maybe naive assumptions that everything you say is true, you know as a poet so like here's my lived experience sure. um, especially in the slam and like kind of the American slam scene and stuff it's all like there's a kind of the privilege that comes with trauma you know it's mm -hmm. like this is really bad and it happened to me mm -hmm. therefore I'm the expert and the authority Right. and if a writer gets up and goes this is a thing that happened and I've made it up you know people are like boo no, they don't <laughs> actually boo but you know it's just that thing of like it's not true so therefore it's not as good right but, in that sometimes you have to lie to tell the truth. Absolutely. And that almost seems to be what that line is saying directly, that honesty is about more than fact. Honesty yeah. is about something that the tr that the relationship between truth and fact is not necessarily simple. Yeah. Um, often it's not immediately clear, for me anyway as a reader, what is actually happening in this story. <laughs> um, and one decision that a writer obviously always has to make is how much to tell the reader, how to manage the uncertainty that the reader brings to the story, how yeah. much of that to alleviate. Um, it seems to me, Sean O'Reilly pulls off that management superbly in this story. Mm. Um, how does he do it? Or what was your experience of that sense of uncertainty and ambiguity while you read? Yeah, it was brilliant. Like, you know, like he... He says too much sometimes, um, but it's still not too much. You know, when you're reading it, you're going, it's got, and he takes it up to the edge all the time. Um, so, yeah, it's like, you know, kind of two plus two, and the reader says four. Uh, that's happening in lots of ways, but there's lovely ambiguity there as well, like around the truth. So, um, what was the phrase he used? Uh, which one? <laughs> <laughs> Just a lovely line. Was it um, about managing the uncertainty of the reader in some way? Yeah, deciding yeah. what you do and don't tell them. Yeah, and that's I think I'm impressed by that with Sean. You know, like does does authority there? Yeah, you know what I mean. And uh, and he's reading in a way. You always assume that the the writer knows more than you about what they're writing about. Mm -hmm. You know, like mm -hmm. and uh, so you're like. I'm just kind of impressed at where he went with this story and uh, I have never been there. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. So it's like, and it's almost like the point where, you know, if you are researching facts, everything in there is possible. That's the mad thing about this as well. Yeah. It's not like that wouldn't happen. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, you really, you know that that's the, the kind of sexual ambiguity in it around gender and, yeah. and, and power is really interesting as well. Um, but, you don't, like, there are things that he's saying as if he's an expert on them and I actually don't have the expertise to say if whether it's or real doesn't. or not. Do you know what I mean? <laughs> yeah, so it's absolutely. like that kind of, and like, I don't know who it was, but like, it's like here, the, the, a good writer is like somebody stamping in the, into the room, Elvis Storm and shaking the snow off their shoes and kind of going, I'm back from where you've never been. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. here's my story from the edge. So, and Sean's an expert in that kind of area, I yeah. think, sometimes, you know. And I think the short story form probably lends itself to that sense of glimpsing something yeah. shocking and confusing, but then it's gone. And yeah. you, you don't, you know, you ha you're left with that sense of utter sort of uncertainty. Um, and I, I was frustrated a little bit by the ending as uh -huh. well. I thought the ending was too, uh, too much of a full stop, you know. 
Um, so, but we won't. I didn't read that deliberately. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't because it was raining for too long or anything. Um, but yeah, we didn't. I, you know, it's good that we didn't read the end, and it'll bring people to the to the end, which is really good. And um, uh, but like you're saying, there's some like uh, the good good short stories for me kind of step off lightly and leave you with lots of questions. Yes, and in some ways, um, I didn't like the way it ended. Okay. But I, I, I did as well because it's like it's not like a chapter in a book where you're gonna read the next part. No, it's like, you can never return to this yeah, world. Yeah, but it is as well. It is like a chapter in a book. Like, what's next? <laughs> what? 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 You know. So, um, at one point, Caitlin says, um, and it's in the section you read to the narrator, um, you can't tell the difference between fear and desire like every other excuse for a man. Um, yeah. And as you were saying, when I first read the story, I could not tell for quite a few pages, actually, yeah. whether the person narrating it was a man or a woman. Um, maybe for some readers, it's actually unclear the whole way through the story, depending on how you interpret certain um, phrases and sort of hints and clues. How yeah. do you think gender and sexuality work in this story? I mean, they're obviously so central and important, and yet in an unexpected kind of unsettling way. Yeah, how do you how do I think gender and sexuality? sexuality? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's just in a fascinating way. Like, I mean, uh, I think it's more it's more interesting to look at uh, how power works in it, you know, and like the assumptions we make around who has the power in a relationship. So when Bernard comes in throwing the money around, he's got the power, of course, you know. And then Caitlin has power over the protagonist. Who is he actually ever named? I don't. I don't think, think so. he is. Yeah. Um, so, um, like, Caitlin really has a lot of power. And then there's power in it. Like, we didn't really touch it in a piece of red, but there, there's a, like, Caitlin's father is a TD. So she's got this sort of curious power. She's kind of, and she's rejected a sort of life. And um, the power switches between them all at different points in it. Um, sexuality for me is like, in, in fiction, like, everything's permitted. And, but in life, it's not. You know, and like, there's a great sort of freedom in reading about protagonists that do things that you don't allow yourselves to do. But then in this story, you're kind of confronted with the question, like, why don't we allow ourselves to do those mm -hmm. things, you know? Um, and if you think of like, for, so in the Irish context, this story is really interesting for me as well. Like, if you think of like, there might be a culture almost of a sort of accepted, conventional, safe, maybe a bit too beige short stories that are parochial, that kind of might have a farm somewhere in them. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. And like this is very urban. Sure. Um, and it's kind of very European actually, I yeah. think. Yeah. And I would be like, and in the Irish, I'd be thinking more of like Aidan O'Reilly or um, Philip O'Kralik. Um, and, you know, and there's a, there's a little hint of like in terms of sexuality, um, of the is it the manic pixie fairy girl you know this girl this, this manic soif, pixie dream girl yeah, yeah this cipher <laughs> of a woman who yes. kind of drags a man through deeper understanding um, but they're actually like Caitlin might be that a little bit for, for the protagonist mm -hmm. but then they're both that for Bernard and then Bernard's that for them yeah. and it's like kind of you know they're all being trawled through different lives which is what a writer does too that's very interesting to return to something you said at the beginning about um, I think it was the spoken word poetry scene the sense that trauma is an experience that gives a kind of permission or license to speak about a particular 
realm of life. Um, yeah, or you're not allowed to speak about it if you haven't had if you haven't had experience. It. Right, and so disclosure of trauma becomes a kind of act in itself. This story to me seems to contain a lot of trauma, but almost none of it is disclosed directly. Um, yeah, it's definitely. all repressed or suppressed beneath the surface of the story. It's submerged and yet it feels like as a reader very important to the to the to the character of what happens. Yeah, um like Caitlin is probably just acting out all the time around something that happened to her. Yeah. And it definitely hinges on her father. <laughs> yeah. Um and the narrator has spent time in prison. Yeah. Um Bernard obviously seems haunted in some sense. His behavior is so outrageous and kind of compulsive, addictive behavior. Mm. And he's such a cliche. Like before he comes in the door, he's just, you know, how's it going there, the old taxi man, you know? Yeah. <laughs> when he gets into this space, he's like, like kind of rampant. Absolutely. So the world of the story seems like it's almost constructed by these hidden traumas. And yet yeah. we never really find out what any of them specifically actually are. Which is like a good analogy for Ireland. <laughs> <laughs> That's very true, yeah. You know, we're all walking around and everyone's rocking a subplot. Everyone's got like, you know, skeletons in the closet or like, you know, just what happened to... Walking class as well actually kind of is here mm. for me. Like the flats in Inchicore yeah. are gone now. Those skeletal concrete flats, Ballymun. Uh, and there's just like, there's sort of a collective human walking class exploitation that went on for years in Dublin, like say, like, you know, through the church and through institutions and stuff like that. Um, and I think they might all be, to some degree, victims of power, you know, and then they're just like, they're acting it out on themselves. And it's great, like at the end, actually, the more I think of it, what happens, what Caitlin does. Okay, well, I hope that that draws readers to the story um, because, as you say, it's a very interesting ending um, and the more readers that, that reach the story through this podcast, the better. Thank you so much for joining us today, yeah, Colin. Thanks for having it's me, It's been Sally. a pleasure to have you. So just a reminder that Colin Keegan's new book, Randomer, is available in shops now and on the Salmon Poetry website. He was reading the story The Cavalcade by Sean O'Reilly. That story is available on the Stinging Fly website and the link will be in the notes to this episode. All the Stinging Fly's archive uh, is available for subscribers to the magazine and can be accessed through the website. We'd like to thank the Arts Council for making this podcast possible and we look forward to seeing you again next month for our next episode. Thanks again. Right